The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Morning. How's everybody doing this morning? You did it. You braved this. These are the true Oregonians. Amen. Snopes. I have, friend, I have a friend who's a pastor in Bend and another who's a pastor in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And they saw all, they're from here originally, and so they saw all your guys' social media. Well, not all your guys, because you're here. Everyone else's social media. Oh, we can't get out of the house. There's like two inches of snow and we're stuck forever. I hope we don't starve to death. You know, that kind of stuff. And they were just mocking. Well, not you. Again, they were mocking them. And maybe rightfully so. It was funny. But it is beginning to look a lot like Christmas, right? Can we get an amen for some snow? We like it, right? I like it. Yeah, hey, uh, I have a whole lot of announcements. It was like literally like eight or nine announcements on the sheet. You're getting four. So uh, Christmas food baskets, your deadline is today. I don't know why I picked that one. That's, you're already here. Whatever. Okay, so uh, if you didn't bring your food but you do have it, you can make arrangements at the info desk, I think, to be able to get that um, to us. Uh, ladies, Christmas celebration is tonight, 6.30. Um, after service, if a few men could stick around just for a minute, it won't take long at all. But um, we need a few men to help set up some tables so, uh, for the gals tonight. So uh, show off your manliness and your muscles and all that thing. Um, Christmas Eve service is Thursday, December 24th, because that's Christmas Eve. It's going to be here at 6.30, candlelight service. It's always a really, really good time. So looking forward to that. And then uh, also, Financial Peace University is about to start. This is the, uh, what's that guy's name? Somebody help me. Dave Ramsey. You guys have all been. So uh, Financial Peace University is starting Tuesday, January 19th. You have to sign up in advance and space is limited, so you want to get into that. It's a really, really good program, especially after we rack up a bunch of credit card debt at Christmas. Amen? Um, and then one last thing. Hey, be in prayer if you guys would. Here in just a little while, our high school group who's in Bend right now for a snowboard trip to Mount Bachelor will be making their way back, and a lot of the roads you would normally take to come back are actually closed. So it sounds like they're going to have to go all the way down through Klamath Falls and try to make their way back this way. So uh, we got some really good guys, really good drivers, all the safety stuff they could need. Just pray for them if you would, um, that they would have safety on their way back. And, and let's even just do that right now as we uh, open the service in prayer, can we? Um, God, we're thankful, Lord, for the beauty of your creation. Um, Lord, I'm, I'm so thankful that we live in a place where we can enjoy beautiful summers, great, crisp, beautiful springs. The, the fall with the leaves and all those things. And Lord, we can enjoy snow and the beauty of that in your creation as well, Lord. So we praise you for this. Even as we see the snow fall, we remember, Lord, that, that your word tells us that because of your son, Lord, those of us who have put our faith in you, our sins, once scarlet, have now been washed white as snow. And so even as we see this, may we glory not just in the creation, but may we look past it to you and give you thanks and praise for who you are. God, we pray for our high school group as they're making their way back today for safety. I know that you knew this storm was coming and that you're in control and that your hand will be on them, Lord. So we pray, Lord, for safety and provision on the way home, for uh, alertness and awareness for the drivers and all those things that you might bring them home safely. Pray for the women's thing tonight and any weather issues that could complicate that, Lord, that, that your will would just be done and you would be worshiped and glorified there. And God, we pray even right now, Lord, as we open up your word this morning, this, this Advent season, Lord, that you would fill us with hope, that even the joy we see of a snowfall would be translated into so many different areas of our life, Lord, but ultimately resting in you. May we find our hope in you this morning. So God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh, my King, my Rock, my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Hey guys, uh, if you don't have a Bible, stick a hand up uh, nice and high. We'll make sure you get one. And today we're going to actually be in Isaiah chapter 59. So if you would turn to the book of Isaiah, it's about, oh, right there. About halfway through. Isaiah chapter 59. Find the Psalms, hang a right, you'll be there soon. And uh, anyone else need a Bible? Any hands up? Wave them around if you don't. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, that's a gift. <clears throat> Hope you guys are having a, a great holiday season. Is everybody having a good holiday season so far? 
Um, I hope so. Um, I, I hope that everybody is uh, uh, out there enjoying it, getting all your Christmas shopping. Just out of curiosity, how many people still go to stores versus online shopping? Stores, raise your hand. Online shoppers, raise your hand. Right? Amazon, Amazon Prime, baby. Two days free shipping. It's the best thing ever. Yeah, really, really thankful for that. Really, I hope this is all going good for you guys. Um, this is really sort of a season of hope, is it not? This is the season, if you will, of hope, the Christmas season. It's kind of, the commercials are about it, the stuff you see in the stores, ornaments. Some of you have ornaments on your trees that just say hope. It's, it's really kind of what that season is. And, and there's a lot of things to hope for in, in particular. There's a lot of people that are probably hoping in gifts this year. Let's not lie. We like gifts, and we should like gifts, because even the, the Bible tells us that all gifts we get have been given down from our Father of lights, that God is the originator of gifts. So, so it's not a sinful, selfish thing, though it's more blessed to give than receive, amen? It is not a sin to enjoy a gift. It's just not, and that's a good thing. Some of you guys are hoping for all sorts of things. Some of you, especially maybe some gals, are hoping for something really big. Like last week, remember we joked about he went to Jared? So, some of you are really doing that. Anyone, and you don't have to raise your hand, but anyone hoping they get a proposal this holiday season? Ooh, it's that time. Somebody said yes. Was that? Was that <laughs> is he here? <laughs> that's a big season for that, right? Any little gift that's in the ring-shaped box? Ooh, could that be it? It's a big season. And, and guys, let me just tell you, if you are in a relationship and she's hoping for that, let me encourage you, you have two weeks left and God has given you Google. Use it and plan. Because engagements, there's two questions that she's going to be asked for the rest of her life. Number one, can I see the ring? Number two, how did he do it? And nothing's worse, trust me on this one, than having a bad proposal story that for the rest of your life, you have to start the story out with, well, you see, you have to understand. <laughs> That's my story. Not sharing it with you today, we'll save that for some other time. But, but I did, and this is why I'm encouraging you guys, use Google, there are ideas out there. And since we have things like Google and YouTube, the stakes have risen. They have risen. I, I read, or, or I can't remember if it was a video or what it was, but I, I saw this story, and it's unbelievable. I'm going to make every guy in here mad. You ready for this? So, so this guy, he goes to propose to his girlfriend, and um, she didn't know, of course, and so he goes and picks her up. He, he drives like this little Honda sedan. It's a basic, plain old Honda sedan. Picks her up in the car, and they drive up to this lake where his friend's ski boat is sitting there waiting on him. And he's like, yeah, we got the ski boat for the day. So they park the car, jump in the boat, and they just go zipping all over the lake, just having a great old time. And then they pull the boat up to an island in the lake, and there set up on the island is like a picnic, all set up. Now at that moment, the radar's up, right girls? Something's different here. And so they have this great picnic and hang out for a little while. And then they get back in the boat. They go zipping back to where his car was. But now his car is gone. And in the place of the car is a limousine. Girls, the flags are waving now, right? Like, uh-oh. So they get in this limousine. And they get in the back and pour some milk. And, get in the <laughs> and they go riding off in this limousine to the airport. Dude got a plane. Got a plane. How do you just get a plane? Guy got a plane. They get into an airplane. They fly all over the place. They're like looking at the, the place they lived, all this kind of stuff. By the way, this is not my story, just to clarify. <laughs> Flying all over the place. My story involved a public bathroom at the mall. Just a little sneak preview. But I'll tell you about it some other time. Some other time. So the plane flies. I'm not joking. So the plane flies around. And then it comes and it goes just outside of town and lands on this grass strip, like just little, it's one of those little puddle jumper death trap planes, you know, and they land it just on this like grass strip and there parked on the side of this old abandoned rundown runway is this beat up old, we used to call them like a hoopty pickup truck, just a beat up, rusted up pickup truck. 
And they get into the pickup truck, and then they go driving back into town where the college campus is, where they actually attended, and they go to the chapel that's in the college campus, and when they walk inside, it's all been decorated up like it's a wedding. There's family on both sides, like the pressure is on now, right? She better say yes, you know what I'm saying? But all this is there, and there's this big card in the front, it's got her name, and she walks up to the front, and she opens up the card, and it says, will you? And he's like, bam, rings out, unbelievable. Now, that's pretty incredible, right? Guys, just go ahead right now. Look at your wife next to you and just say, I'm sorry. Okay? Because it's going to get worse. Because at their wedding, dude gets up, starts giving this speech, this mushy, just she's the greatest thing ever speech. And in the speech, he says, what you don't yet realize is every vehicle we got in on that trip represents a different stage in our life and was planned out meticulously. Right? Right? This guy's name was probably like Nicholas Sparks or something like that. But he says, so the car at the beginning, it's just a sedan, it's just a basic little car, but that was to tell you that just in the normalcy of life, I'm going to be by your side, I will be dependable, I will be there at 36 miles to the gallon. And then he says, the boat, that's, I want fun in our life. I want fun in our marriage. And so that was my commitment to you to say, we're going to make that a priority. We want to enjoy our time together. The limousine, this is a weird one. It's a stretch. <laughs> Get it? <laughs> See what I did there? Stretch limo. <laughs> but this is what he said. He said, there's going to be times in our life where we're not driving. There's going to be times in our life where we're not in control of where we go, where, where other things or other people or other events are driving us. But I'm just telling you right now, I will be by your side, toasting you every step of the way. I'll never regret my relationship with you. Guys, are you nauseous at all yet? The plane, what could the plane mean? This is where it gets super like, oh my goodness. He's like, that represents how we are going to grow closer and closer to God as we walk through life together in our marriage. We are going to ascend in our spirituality closer and closer to Jesus. That guy's house is probably just wrecked with Thomas Kincaid paintings. <laughs> and then the last one, beat up hoopty pickup truck. Anybody want to guess what that means? You totally stole my thunder. Yeah. We're, we're going to grow old together. We're going to grow old. And, and even as we start to break down and we're not what we once were, I'm going to be there for you every step of the way. Ugh, right? So, so here's what happens when something like that happens and then and when that story gets out. When a guy does that for a girl, and ladies, you can testify to this, he is sowing incredible hope into the heart of that young woman. Is he not, ladies? He's also destroying the hopes of every guy who hears that story ever. So every girl hears a story like that, and if you're not married yet, you hope you'll find someone that will put that much effort into that event, and every guy hopes he'll find someone that never heard that story. <laughs> right? An event like that can have such hope. Boys, I hope you do your homework. Girls, I hope he went to Jared. But here's the thing. Do you know how many stories like that, that started with that much hope, ended in anything but? Do you know how many stories like that, those rings ended up in pawn shops? Do you know how many stories like that have ended totally hopeless. Now, when we hear stories like that, there's a part of us, especially the ladies, but there's a part of us that hears those stories and we're drawn to that because we are hardwired for hope. Hope is a central element of our entire lives. Your best memories in life are stories where your hopes were fulfilled. And your biggest tragedies in life are stories where Tragedy, where the events of life, you lost all hopelessness, all hope was gone, and tragedy ensued because of it. Hope is absolutely central in our life, and, and hope is this tricky thing. It's an object, and it's an expectation. We will hope in something, 
And then we hope that something brings us something. So, so in a case like that, we will hope in marriage, hoping for a marriage like that. But then we're not just hoping for the marriage itself, but now we're also hoping that that marriage is going to provide for us everything that we've dreamed, everything we wanted. We're hoping that that marriage will provide happiness and joy and all of those things. And the problem is, though we are hardwired for hope, we are all too quick and we way too frequently put our hope and expectation on things that can't possibly uphold the weight of our expectations. They're just not designed to provide for us in the way these things are. Even something as amazing and big and huge as marriage is not designed, can't possibly live up to the hope that we put into things like that. It just can't. We all do this. It's not marriage, it's something else. We hope in all sorts of things. I'll be, some of you guys love it when I'm transparent, so here's one for you. Um, I find myself many times throughout my life too frequently putting hope in others. And, and what I mean by that is like expecting some form of affirmation or, 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 or approval or something from other people to help me feel better about myself and about who I am. Many of us do this, right? And, and I was trying to think of some examples. Here's, here, here's a pretty benign one, and it's silly, but it'll, the silliness is good because it'll just show you how we can do something like this. Like, um, I, I'm, not, I'm not gonna brag, except I'm gonna. Um, I can cook. And I don't mean like, I don't bake, I don't flour and rollers, none of that kind of stuff. Like, I can cook on the grill. Like I can cook, and I don't mean just slap a burger on there, I mean do it up. The right spices, the right temperature, like that's a big deal to me. I love doing that. And I can remember a time, and I hope that person actually isn't in this congregation right now, but I'm gonna be anonymous, and if it is, I still love you. But I remember a time that we were entertaining someone years ago, and I was gonna cook for them. And one of the things that, especially at that time, that I did best is I, I could make these New York strip steaks with a homemade from scratch garlic butter. And it's unbelievable, man. It's like heaven. Like as soon as you cut in and take a bite, angels start singing. You know what I mean? It's just it's unbelievable. Like a dark room becomes light. It's unbelievable, right? And so knowing these people were coming over and I, really, I wanted to impress them. I wanted to put on a great meal and I knew that this was like my thing. I can nail this one. And, and so I did that and I cooked them up and they were perfect. Like they were just the perfect pink in the middle. They had the char lines perfectly on the outside because I only turned them once. So you get the perfect lines. I mean, it was just like perfect. Like no steakhouse in the world has a commercial with a steak prettier than this steak that I just made. And I bring them out. I mean, they, they're perfect. And, and the first, the first comment that started the, uh, was, Hey, um, could you put mine back on just a little bit? I like mine a little more well done. And at first I'm like, oh, what? What? This is okay. That's all right. Some people, I, okay. I understand that we can do that. We'll put it back on there. And I, I remember putting the steak on there so the grill lines still line up. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> so the steak goes back on there. We'll, we'll heat it up a little more. It's fine. We can do that. Brought it in, get that homemade garlic butter. And I'm talking like with, with fresh cloves in there and Dijon mustard and Worcestershire sauce. Like you mix the whole thing up. It's unbelievable. Anybody hungry? It's so amazing. And I put that on there and I set it on the plate and I get it there. And they said, and it's, it's the worst thing. And I know their hearts were good. If you're here, I know your hearts were good. But it's the worst thing you can say to someone who just pulled a piece of meat like that off the grill. And some of you know what it is already. They said, do you have any A1 sauce? Do you have any A1 sauce? <gasps> now we laugh a little bit. But in that moment, who among us had been in a situation similar to that? And you actually feel the prick of that in a weird way. You see, it's such a dumb thing. Why should that matter? Why should I care? I mean, if my heart is for the guest that's coming over to experience the ultimate amount of joy that they can out of the meal, and they're into A1 sauce, then that should be good, right? I should be like, I have a giant bottle of A1 sauce. Heinz 57.2 if you want some of that. I mean, I should be like, that should be good. But in that moment, I'm less interested in their joy and I'm more interested in fulfilling my own. I, I, I want the affirmation. I want the praise. 
I want the, you nailed it. I want to feel good about myself. Do you see? And we, we, we all have examples of things like that that we've done. Some of us are buying Christmas gifts right now and going all out, not just because we want that person to have a great gift, but because we want to impress. We want to hear the thank you in return because we're looking to people to supply this measure of hope to fill us up in the inside. And I'm not alone. We do this. So this holiday season, consider the question for a minute. What do you hope in? What are the things you look to for fulfillment, purpose, joy, pleasure? What are the things you go to to put wind in your sails? And maybe a better way of really telling what those things are, when things are bad, where do you go? When, when stuff goes down, when you're suffering, when you're disappointed, when things fall through, what do you turn to? Is it a person? Are you looking to be nurtured and loved and comforted and you're expecting that person to make everything better? Is it food? Is it alcohol? Is it drugs? Is it sex? Is it money? Is it toys? Is it cars? What, what are the things that you actually turn to? Now here today we're in Isaiah 59, and as you know, normally we're in the book of Ephesians right now, but we're taking a few weeks off to do an Advent series. Advent um, is, is just a way that the, the church devised many years ago to, to take a set of time around Christmas to set aside and to consider the coming of Jesus Christ, the coming of his hope, and then also, as we'll do in two weeks, to spend a Sunday or to spend a week to look forward to the fact that he's coming again. Last week, we looked, it's kind of a dark passage. Last week, we looked at the need. Why do we need Jesus to come? Why did the baby have to come in the first place? What is the darkness of the situation that we're in? And, and today, we're looking at this idea of hope and promises. And, and we're using a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 59, in which God makes incredible, great promises to Israel in the midst of darkness, despair, and hopelessness. Now, let me give you just a little bit of background for this passage so you understand where we're going on this. Um, in this passage, Israel has been in captivity. They've been, the people of God have been taken into captivity into the nation or by Babylon. And they've been carried away. The nation is a fragment of what it used to be, what it was supposed to be. And now a group has returned back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Mount Zion, their, their city, the place they sang psalms about, like the place that they put so much joy and so much hope in. Because remember, Israel wasn't looking so much for a Messiah like Jesus. They were looking for the Messiah that's going to come, get on the throne, reestablish the nation of Israel as a power, defeat Israel's enemies, and rule and reign forever. And now they've been carried out of their land, and then a group gets to come back. And they come back to Israel, come back to, to Jerusalem, and there in Jerusalem they find the city is just in shambles. There's no walls, there's no government, there's no laws, there is total and complete chaos, there's no, there's no civil government, there's no leadership, there's nothing. There's mass poverty, there's violence, it is a wreck. This thing they had hoped in and lived for for so long is a disaster. And so here, out of this darkness of Israel's situation, we're going to see this promise of hope. Now, this week, I'm actually giving you guys the end before the start. I'm going to lay this out for you. If you're a note taker, you can write these things down even, and you're going to see them then as we go quickly through the text. The first, I'm going to just give you a little rundown of kind of the way this passage is broken down. In verse 1 of Isaiah 59, you're going to see a misplaced charge, an accusation against God that is a misplaced charge against God. Then in verses 2 through verse 8, you're going to see a divine accusation. God responds and says, this is the reality of what's going on. A divine accusation. Verses 9 through 15, a vital, necessary, healthy confession. And then finally in verses 16 through 20, you're going to see God's answer, a divine intervention. The very thing we celebrate in the Christmas and Advent season, this divine intervention. 
And then also, as we're going through this text, we're going to learn some things and see some things about hope. The first thing is this. We're going to realize that the Christmas story, and I hope you're already getting this from our time together, the Christmas story is a hope story. There are ornaments all over the place that are Christmas ornaments that will say things like hope. It is central to this season, and it is part of the story of hope created, hope lost, and then hope restored. That's the story of the Christmas season. The second thing is this, though. The doorway to hope is hopelessness. The doorway into hope. The only way you find hope is on giving up hope in all of the things that we've misplaced our affections in all along. Number three, for hope to be real hope, like genuine, worth hoping in hope, For hope to be real hope, it's got to be able to deal with our biggest and most, uh, um, our real issue. Like not just surfacey stuff, not just like chapstick or a band-aid, but but it's got to be able to deal with the reality of what's going on, not just some topical band-aid or temporary fix. And then number four, we're going to see hope is not a thing, it's not a place, it's not a time. Hope is a person. And his name is Jesus. Amen? So let's look first, this misplaced charge. Look at Isaiah 59.1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. You've heard this verse before, right? Now, this passage, we use it to encourage one another, like the Lord's near. Hey, he's not absent. His arm's not short that he can't save. He's near. But the actual context of him saying this, he's responding to a charge or an accusation from Israel. And it's one that we do all the time. Now, remember Israel's situation. Destitute, depression, destruction, hopelessness. And when we're in that situation, what's one of the first things that you hear people say with regards to God in situations of tragedy and despair? They say, where are you? I thought you loved us. I thought you had a plan. I thought you were going to be here. And we begin to question God's goodness. We begin to question God's plan and his very presence. Is he even here? Where are you? I thought you would help me. This is the accusation. This is why God is responding. I'm not gone. My arm's not short that I can't reach you. My ears aren't dull that I don't hear what's going on. I know what's going on. But what tends to happen is when we end up in situations where our hope seems to be diminishing or gone altogether, we end up in a place so often where we make this same kind of accusation against God. Where are you? I thought you loved me. If God is a good and loving God, how could he allow such things to happen? And it's a misplaced charge. Because number one, it's not true. And number two, it assumes that God is against our happiness. It assumes that a God is against our joy, that, that God either has given up on us and abandoned us like a bad and absent father, or that he's just straight up mean and wants us to suffer. But the reality is this. Many times, as is the case with Israel, what God is doing is doing whatever he has to do to get us to loosen our grip on these things that we put our hope in because he knows it's going to destroy us. I mean, Israel has been so prideful, so about themselves, so self-focused, isolated themselves from the rest of the world. They are not the missionary nation they were supposed to be. They are not the vessel of God's goodness and grace to the rest of the world. Israel, God's chosen people, have become so proud and arrogant and look at us and we are God's special. Instead of getting God's favor and living out of that grace, they live as if they're God's favorites. And they have made their nation, their city, and their status as God's chosen people, their total identity, and they're arrogant. And God is desperately trying to get them to loosen their grip on this idolatry of self. And you see this throughout the prophets, not just in Isaiah. Uh, Amos, for example, there's this recurring refrain that goes on over and over and over through Amos, where he's saying, to the, in the same kind of situation, Amos is saying, but you would not return to me. But you would not return to me. But you would not return to me. 
And here's the thing, so many times when we're in a hopeless situation, we wanna turn an accusatory finger towards God and say, where are you? And what we fail to realize most of the time, a lot of the suffering and difficulty we go through in life is grace. It is the goodness of God showing us that we have put our hope in something that can never fulfill us. And it will leave us destitute and destroyed and broken down and sad when the real source of hope has been there the entire time. So they make this misplaced charge towards God. Where are you? I thought you loved us. And this misplaced charge is then followed by a divine accusation. Look at verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And he goes on through verse 8 to describe, just for the sake of time, we're not going to break down every single verse today, you're welcome. But he goes through and and describes the rest of their problem. And and here's what the problem is. Um, We tend to think and we like to think that the source of our problems is outside us. That's what we like to do. The reason this is going on in my life is because of that or that. It's the environment that I'm in. It, it, it's, it's the situation that I'm in. It's, it's this, it's these things out here. But the reality is, is that when you really boil down to it, regardless of what the situation you're dealing with is, the real root of your problem, if you will dig down deep enough to try to deal with it, the real root of the problem is always us. We are the problem. Everybody say it with me. We are the problem. You feeling encouraged and hopeful yet? Christmas service? Yes. Never coming to this church again. I could have been sledding. No, listen. We are the problem. But think about it. Think about it. We'll say things like, I got stuck in a bad marriage. Do you know there's no, there's no bad marriages? You know that, right? I mean, marriage is an amoral institution. You know what there are? Bad people in marriages. People in marriages who do bad things. Or or it could be an environmental thing. We say, uh, dangerous neighborhood. I live in a dangerous neighborhood. No one has ever been injured or wounded by a neighborhood, ever. Neighborhoods don't kill people. People kill people. Right? But we want to, it's the environment. If I just was over here, corrupt government, that's another one. There's no corrupt government. There are corrupt people in government. The, the real root of every problem we have, when you dig down deep, it's people. And it's not just a matter of semantics. It's people. And so we, as people, have taken God's gifts, God's institutions, God's locations, God's environment, God's situations. And we, through our sin, have corrupted these things and created for ourselves situations where we find ourselves in hopelessness. Situations where we find ourselves in despair. Our sin is our biggest problem. It's in here. It's not out there. The root of our problems is in here. And so we start to look to other things so many times because we want to put the blame out there, then we'll look for the solution out there somewhere and we'll say, what I need is a new location. If I, I can't live in this neighborhood. I need to live in that neighborhood. But you're going to move to another neighborhood and you know what you're going to find? People. You're going to leave one marriage. You're going to go to another marriage. You're going to find us. We're still there. Government, whatever the case may be. Everywhere you go, there are people. And everywhere you go, if there are people, there is sin. In every situation. The prophet, as you read through verse 8, you're going to see he uses three different words to kind of describe and define uh, more accurately our situation. The first is he uses the word iniquity. Iniquity means like moral uncleanliness. Moral uncleanliness. We would like to think that we're pure, but, but we're not. We, we have proclivities towards, our, our thoughts are not always pure. Our motives are not always pure. Our intentions are not always pure. Though we might want to convince ourselves that we're making that stake for someone because we're for their joy, in reality, our motives oftentimes are, I'm doing this because I'm looking for my joy. The second one is transgression. He uses the word transgression. Transgression is just um, high-handed rebellion. It's willingly stepping over boundaries. It's knowing the boundary is there and not caring. It's knowing, speaking of transparency, the speed limit and intentionally not caring. It's knowing those kind of rules. It's, It's those moments when you know you're about to hurt someone's feelings and you do it anyway. And the third word is this, sin. He uses the word sin, which the, the best description really is, it's falling short of the mark. 
the standards, the rule, the law that God has given us to govern ourselves, our relationships with one another, we have all fallen desperately short of this mark. We cannot blame the things around us as much as we would love to and as much as we want to. You see it from the very beginning with Adam and Eve. When sin happened, Adam's, uh, it was the woman you gave me. Eve, uh, it was the snake. I mean, they're just blaming everyone. But the reality is our biggest problem is we have sinful hearts. Sinful, selfish, self-exalting hearts. Now this accusation is followed by a confession. Look at verse 9. It says, therefore, justice is far from us. This is Israel now. And the righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness. And for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight among those in full vigor. We are like dead men. We growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. It doesn't sound like the most normal Christmas passage ever, right? It's coming. Hang on. Hope for it. But the picture here is a group of people that have just completely lost their way. Like, like in the dark, like a, a person in the dark with a blindfold on, feeling around, just trying to find their way, no secure footing, don't know where to go, don't know what to do, don't know what's in front of them, groping through this. And, and people who are in that situation, when our sin is running its course with us, you have one of two options. Number one, you point your finger. Or number two, and thankfully here, and better for sure, you confess and take responsibility. Look at verse 12. They say, for our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing, denying the Lord, turning back from following God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Now, this, though it doesn't look it, it'd be really easy for us to look at this and go, gosh, Jeff, what are you doing? Man, I brought somebody. Like, you're, this is the doom and gloom. Well, you got Christmas lights up there and you're talking darkness, but, but listen, this is beautiful. Because what they're doing right here, this is the ultimate confession of hopelessness. You're right. What they're saying here is, I have a problem I can't solve. I'm helpless we have been groping around trying to find our way. We have stopped following God to follow ourselves. We are the reason we are in the situation we've got. We've even blamed God for this. We've moaned and groaned and pitched fits. But this is the situation here. And I, my problem is me and I can't run from me. And when you get to that place where you can confess the hopelessness of the stuff that you're putting all your trust in instead of God, then that is the place. That's where you need to be. If you are at a point in your life in any area where you're saying, if only, then you're not there yet. I, my college roommate had this horrible car. It was a Volkswagen Rabbit. Remember those? Volkswagen Rabbit, and like you couldn't even barely drive the thing. Like everything in there, you're like, to start it, there was like an equation. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like put in the key, turn it three quarters of the way, pull out a little bit, turn it a little bit more, pump the gas twice, knock on the hood. Like it was like that to get the car to start. It was that bad. And he went out with that car and spent, and it's expensive in North Carolina, got personalized license tags. And the license tags he put on this Volkswagen Rabbit was if only. That's what he put. And people go, what does that mean? If only I had a different car. If only I had this. If only I had that. He's a good guy, good-natured guy. But the heart of that is so dangerous. If only I had that relationship. If only I had that gift. If only I had that possession. If only I had that job. When we are in a place in our life where we're still holding on to those things, we have not abandoned hope in these things that will absolutely let us down. The best thing you can do is abandon hope and realize I will never find a toy or a car or a possession that will ultimately fulfill my happiness. It's never going to happen. There will never be a marriage that is going to make me happy and joyful and fulfilled for the rest of my life. It doesn't exist. There will never be a job that will end all of my worries. There will, those things will never exist, whatever it is. And look, 
marriage is a great institution. There can be so much hope at the beginning, but he's going to let you down a lot. And so is she. And people make terrible gods, great husbands and wives, terrible gods. And when we go into a relationship putting all the weight of our hope on that, they can't possibly live up to that. Ladies, you see us. I mean, come on. We're lucky we get the right shoe on our foot. Like, we're just not designed for that. And to get to that place of confession that doesn't just confess sin, but confesses, I am hopeless. All of these things that I turn to are constantly letting me down. I will never find joy in all these things I keep banging my head against. But the beauty is, is God knows this too. Because look at verse 15, and this is where it gets good. Verse 15. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and look what it says. And it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and he wondered that there was no one to intercede. God sees this. God's there in this. And God's looking around and he is telling every single one of us, guys, there is no such thing as horizontal hope. Stop looking for it. Stop expecting it. Stop banging your head. Stop going to these cisterns that are empty and dry and will never fulfill your thirst. But the, the beautiful thing is, the be- God is so much better than us, amen? I love my dog. I love my dog. You guys know this. If you follow me on Instagram, I'm insufferable, right? It's bad. Like, I love my dog. This morning, snow's out there. Puppy's never really been in the snow before. But he's a pretty well-behaved dog. Stays around with me all the time until today. And I opened the door over at the office, way over there. He saw the white stuff. The water got on. There's something about water and dogs, man. It makes him hyper like that. And he was gone. And he made it all the way down to the river over here, like down the fence from that. And to make matters worse, I'm here in these like boots. There's snow and slush all over the ground. I can't even chase him down. I can't do anything. Ooh, and he got back. But, but look what God does. He's not, he's not wiping us out. He's not turning his back. Look at this divine intervention in verse 16. It says, Then his own arm brought salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. Anytime you see in the Old Testament when it speaks of the arm of the Lord, that's a reference to the Messiah. Like he saw how hopeless we were. He saw that we were constantly seeking hope in all these other things, that we were worshiping other gods, clinging to other things. And instead of just saying, all right, well, you chose, I'm out. He intercedes. He puts himself, he incarnates himself into our situation and sends us the Son. This is what he's saying. He's saying, when you are out of hope, I will send you hope. When you are hopeless, I will bring hope. I will be the one. And that hope that's returning is bringing two things with it, justice and grace. Look at verse 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak according to their deeds so he will repay. Uh Uh-oh, that sounds bad. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. God is coming and he is going to deal with sin and wickedness and evil. All the things that are actually wrong with this world, God promises to deal with. And that should bring us two competing emotions. It should bring us comfort and terror. I mean, it should bring us comfort because who wants to live in a world ruled by a king that doesn't care about justice? Who wants that? Who wants a world of chaos and sin where you can be sinned against and you go to that leader who you depend on for protection and provision and he goes, oh, what do you want me to do? So he says, no, I'm coming. I'm going to deal with it. He is a holy God who is totally committed to justice, which should bring terror to our hearts. Because we are so, we, we, are, we are an immoral people in an immoral rule, world ruled by a moral, just, and holy God. 
And if we consider this, we can understand the fear that should come, but, but I don't think it's ever really possible for us to understand how terrifying that is because we just don't get how dangerous it is. I mean, when you go to the mall or you go to some place and you're lusting after some girl, you're not thinking about how dangerous that is. All you see is beauty, not danger. We're just not aware. We don't fully comprehend how damaging these things are. When you rebel against your parents, you don't see danger. You feel independence and power and strength. But it's danger because these are sins against a holy, just God who swears, I will deal with every single sin. But he doesn't just come armed with justice. The beautiful thing about our God, and he is beautiful, is that he will come with grace. Look at verse 20. We're almost done here. And a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. I'm coming in justice. But he also says, a redeemer's coming. Redeem means to buy back. To buy back. Say, I'm going to send my son. And he's going to live the perfect sinless life that you could not live. He's going to go to the cross, and on his shoulders, he will carry the penalty of all of those sins that you did not commit. And he's going to rise again. He's going to triumph over death in a way that you couldn't. He's going to satisfy God's wrath towards sin, and he is going to make the way. He is paying the price that we sinful, rebellious people who have no hope in ourselves whatsoever can put our hope in him and be saved. That the justice we deserve was executed on Jesus himself and then he's the one who turns and offers us. This is unbelievable. The grace that he promises is unbelievable. He gives us his righteousness. It's as if we lived his life so that we can stand before a holy God without fear. That we can, with our track record, stand before that holy God with no fear. That's unbelievable. And no longer will sin separate us from him. This says, no longer. And then verse 16 through 20, when you look at it, it's really just a description of the cross of Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ is the place where justice and grace connected. And in that connection, on the cross, where that holy justice of God and the amazing grace of God intersected, that's where the wrath of this wicked world was dealt with, and grace burst forth to those who will choose to put their hope in Jesus Christ. That's the Christmas story. And because of this, hope is returned. What we need to have hope in anything that actually matters, it's got to be able to deal with your biggest problem. Your car will not deal with your biggest problem. The best job in the world will never deal with the biggest problem. Nothing out there anywhere will be able to deal with the problem of the sin and wickedness of our hearts. But Jesus Christ, praise God, has. He has dealt with our sin. The one thing we need is Jesus Christ. The only thing we should put our ultimate hope in this holiday season is Jesus Christ. The only place we can find hope in is Jesus Christ. And, and then, you know, the beauty of it is, it's not just all that, but then he turns and he says, it's better than that, guys, because there's a time coming and a place coming, speaking of locations and situations, where that sin won't exist anymore. There's a place coming where not only are you forgiven, not only are you set free, but you're changed. You will never struggle with hopelessness again. A place of total, complete joy where I am always with you. This is God's promise to us. He closes out in verse 21. As for me, this is my covenant with them. This is my promise, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you, my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth forevermore. The promise of God is this. You will find disappointment everywhere, but I will never let you down. That's the promise of God. Mother and father will fail you, but I will never abandon you, says the Lord. Though my strength and my heart fail me, God is my portion forever. Moth and rust corrupts everything we're going to go buy at Christmas, but God will never fade away. There are things he's doing for us that will last forever, and he's begging you, church, put your hope in Jesus. Everything else is going to let you down. Put your hope in him. And that's the beauty of this holiday season, that hope came. And the beauty of it is, 
hope's coming again. But for those who have put their hope in him, I encourage you people, if you haven't done that, please put your hope in Jesus. Let's stand and pray, can we? Next week, one week from today, all family Christmas celebration service, it's going to be a party in here as we get to focus and celebrate on the beautiful arrival of that incredible baby, our Savior, our King, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen? That's next week. And so let's, let's go now and be vessels of that hope to the people out there. Let, let me, what time, is that clock right? Are we okay? Do I have a quick moment? Can I talk to you about Starbucks for two seconds? Because here's the kind of stuff that we do when we get so off track to the reality. This is why things like Advent are so important and so good. That we can see a cup, a red cup, and we can make the focus of our Instagram and social media, look what Starbucks is doing. They won't put Jesus on their cups. First of all, do you know that story's a lie? Do you know that? It was made up by a guy in Wisconsin. They didn't take anything off the red cups. His whole story was a lie. All of that was made up. And, and Starbucks, interestingly enough, on their website, you can buy advent calendars at Starbucks. Because, but they support things. They support this, this, this. You live in a sinful world, but you carry the hope of Jesus. So which is better? To go into the holiday season and let the world know all the places that we're against because of their darkness? Or to go into Starbucks and meet your barista, get to know them and tell them about the hope of Jesus Christ. Which do you think's better? We have such great hope. Carry it out there. They need it desperately. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the hope that you've given us. Thank you so much for your son. Thank you for the reminder to turn back to the simplicity of the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that you sent salvation even in the form of a baby. You showed us, Lord. You intervened in our life. You became like us. You lived for us. You died for us. You rose again to save us. And God, we're so thankful. So God, help us, Lord, to repent of the areas where we continue to put our hope in others or in other things. May we again, Lord, repent, return, and put our hope back in you. And God, I pray that we might carry this hope throughout this valley, Lord. May, may the hope of Jesus be a bigger blanket on this valley than the snow could ever be. And I pray, Lord, that for everyone here even today that you brought together, snowstorm, smaller crowd, doesn't matter. These are the people that you saw would be here today. This is the text you saw we would be in. And so I pray, God, for these people that as they leave this place, may it be said of them like it was the apostles, these people have been with Jesus. And may they carry that hope to the world around them. May this be an incredibly joyful, hope-filled holiday season. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Hey, I love you guys. Remember, guys, we need a few guys to help us.